The Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report from Truth for Health Foundation, and this is Dr. Lee for America. We are here today with a combination medical freedom and faith report about what's going on in the egregious and very damaging area of medical censorship, censorship of medical research and preventing researchers from publishing research that doesn't fit the political agenda of the global elites and the tyrannical political narrative. In addition, we want to discuss what is happening in the church-affiliated institutions, hospitals, universities, and even research-affiliated journals with religious institutions. In terms of suppressing God-given free speech, God-given free creative thoughts that lead to the research ideas and the urgency of discussion and exploration of medical issues and medical research targeted to the design of life as God designed it, not as mankind is trying to corrupt it and usurp it and alter the human genome as well as the genome of every living being on the planet. So this should be an interesting discussion of what one scientist, a PhD neuroscientist, has encountered in his journey to publish his research and to bring truth into our medical discussion on these important topics that people need to understand. So I want to welcome Dr. Stephen Samut, who is a neuroscientist. He's a member of Catholics for Preservation of Life Advisory Council here with Truth for Health Foundation. He has been a stalwart supporter of the Truth for Health Foundation mission and also a man of faith and courage as he is speaking out on difficult topics in his area of expertise. So Dr. Samut, welcome to the show today. And I'd like to have you share with our audience what your areas of research are and what you have been experiencing as you go through trying to publish some of your research, particularly in the area um, that is your finding 
becoming more controversial. Thank you so much for having me on for this opportunity. Uh, as you said, my, my, my background is I'm a neuroscientist and my area of expertise is psychopathology. So my area of focus tends to be uh, addressing how the brain uh, functions in cases of psychopathology. And we're talking about depression, anxiety, uh, Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, uh, drug of, drugs of abuse under the influence of drugs of abuse. So it, it's, it's my goal, my goal, my area of research is investigating uh, the question of what's going on in the brain. I do that research at what's called the preclinical level. So these are not clinical studies. Uh, and this means utilizing an animal model of, uh, in my case, being a rat. And the reason why we're able to do that is because the rat is, has a lot of similarities to the human, as do many animals in terms of the wiring of the brain. Of course, there are differences. And if you wish, those are things I'm happy to go into uh, at, at, at a later point. Um, so my area of research is psychopathology, utilizing at the preclinical level an animal model and investigating uh, whatever aspect is of importance at that particular point in time of my investigation. So I've investigated all of those aspects that I addressed earlier, depression, etc. Um, but now my area of focus has been primarily on abortion-associated effects. And the reason why I went in that direction was because we have been conducting abortions across uh, the, the world for many, many years. And yet the one question that really is never addressed appropriately is what impact does abortion have on the mother, on, on the woman? Uh, now, that's not to say that there isn't research, there is, there is psychological research, but the accusation can be very easily made uh, that those psychological, that psychological research is influenced significantly by social norms, where you work, your faith, uh, whereas at the preclinical level, working on an animal model, <clears throat> those aspects don't matter because no matter how much holy water or uh, a catechism you try and teach an animal, they are not going to become Christian and they are not going to be behaving according to a particular faith. Uh, so I investigate the consequences of uh, abortion in an animal model. And also the other aspect, the other two major aspects that I investigate is at the psychological level associated with psychopathology. I work at a university, so we have students. Students tend to be very susceptible to mental health issues, and this is a growing problem across uh, the world. And so I investigate I investigate aspects that influence mental health uh, in our student population that uh, are very similar, are, are applicable across, across the, the globe. Just because we are a small Catholic university doesn't mean that our results don't have implications. Our results actually are reflected in many other studies that are conducted across the world who have replicated or seen similar aspects as what we've done. The third aspect that I'm focused on is uh, the project where we are looking at the development of a surgical technique for transferring the embryo in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. So 
transferring it from the pathological site, from the site where it shouldn't be, and the woman that would be generally in the fallopian tube, uh, into the uterus in order for both the mother and the baby to survive, given that that procedure has not been uh, developed. So those are the three areas of focus of my research. That's very interesting. And, and I would like to talk with you further about helping people, women who have an ectopic pregnancy, and as you look at some of the surgical techniques. But today, let's focus on some of the consequences of abortion in the animal model. Now, you're talking about, because you're an animal, you're using animals, you're talking about the physiological consequences on the brain, on the animal's behavior subsequently, because alterations in sex hormones can affect the brain and alter behavior. That was research I was uh, doing in when I was an undergraduate in college many years ago. So that we know that drugs of abuse, that psychotropic drugs, hormones, all of these categories of pharmacologic agents have both physical mood and behavioral effects on the brain in animals and in humans. So I think that's really interesting. And I'd, I'd be very interested in your talking with our audience about your findings and what impact having had an abortion has on, on the mother, in this Absolutely. case, based on the animal models, the results. Absolutely. So the disclaimer, if you want to call it that, is that we need to understand that no animal model is a perfect replication of what goes on in a human. That is a limitation that we need to acknowledge as scientists and understand that there, you cannot make a direct extrapolation unless you're taking this limitation into consideration. There needs to be the humility of being able to, to say that and understand that. So uh, the, the question that struck me when I first came up with the studies was that I uh, had recognized that you know there were many psychological reports of potential depression following an abortion in uh, in women, and as I said, this aspect had not been addressed in the scientific literature. So we uh, administered rats, uh, mifepristone and misoprostol. These are the two drugs that are utilized in uh, abortion. And if I may, I'm going to take a moment to divert here just to explain to the to the audience what is going on in terms of these drugs, hopefully in a way that is comprehensible. Uh, so progesterone is the natural hormone within the woman, within the female in general, that is necessary for maintaining a, a pregnancy. Uh, when we're talking about chemicals in the body, Chemicals in the body bind to what we call receptors. This is what has is used. The analogy that's used for this is the key and lock uh, analogy, where the key would be progesterone, for example, and the lock is the key. The, the lock is the receptor, and when the key is in the lock and it's turned, then the door opens. The lock uh, is opened. So progesterone binds to this receptor. And progesterone is necessary for the maintenance of a pregnancy. Uh, an abortion takes place, a chemical abortion takes place, 
when progesterone is blocked by mifepristone. So mifepristone is the equivalent of putting something in front of the lock to block it off so the key can't go in and do what it should do. Uh, so mifepristone blocks the effects of progesterone, and that is how the pregnancy is ter terminated. Um, the, the other drug that is utilized is misoprostol. Misoprostol is administered after mifepristone. Misoprostol induces the contractions of the uterus in order to produce, to, in order for the uh, baby to be uh, basically pushed out of the uterus. Uh, so this is these are the drugs involved, if we want to call them that, in this whole uh, in this whole process. Uh, so in my investigation, and so just had, to clarify, yes. Doctor Samut, so mm -hmm. mifepristone and mifos, mifos, misoprostol, <laughs> misoprostol. <laughs> sorry, my, I'm tongue tied this morning. Uh, those would be in the category that we call abortifacient drugs. In other yes. words, drugs that induce an abortion. Yes. And are these drugs commercially available? Yes, they are. And in fact, uh, uh, this administration, this in regards to the Biden administration, and uh, even unfortunately, many medical organizations have pushed uh, towards making mifepristone even more easily available, despite the significant side effects uh, in, in terms of the drug itself. But if we forget the side effects for a moment, which I don't think we should, uh, it, it, even despite the fact that there is the potential for the abortion through mifepristone may cause psychological harm or other harm uh, in, in the woman. Uh, so there, is, there are, yes, they are commercially available. And unfortunately, they are becoming more easily available. And they are available to women behind the counter in pharmacies, correct? I believe so. I, I stand to be corrected, but yes, I believe so that they have also become available over, over the counter. But like I said, I stand to be corrected in that regard. I know that they are available easily. Let's put it that way. And they've been called in consumer language, plan B. Not exactly. Plan B is is another drug. Um, this this is the, the this is the the abortion pill. I, I guess in the colloquial language for it is more uh, the abortion pill. Um, the it's also now being uh, touted in scientific and medical uh, uh, um, uh, uh, literature as the mist period pill, which is extremely devious. It's exactly the same as the abortion pill, but it is called as the missed period pill because obviously, you know, there are women, if they're stressed, for example, they're going to potentially, their period may be delayed. So there is a, a, a desensitization of the, of the, uh, of the public, uh, making it sound less harmful uh, less dramatic, if you want, by calling it a missed period pill. And this aspect is being abused significantly, even internationally. For example, Bangladesh, where it's illegal to have an abortion if you know that you are pregnant. So, for example, if you have an ultrasound or if you do a pregnancy test, 
But if you think you're pregnant, but you don't do any of that, uh, you can be given the missed period pill, which obviously induces an abortion. It is one and exactly the same thing. I just wanted to clarify that so we would be getting some of the terms out there that people are used to hearing in the uh, promotion of how do you handle an unwanted pregnancy. There's so much promotion of, well, don't worry about contraception, just take a plan B pill. Although it certainly has a lot of significant side effects. And I've been concerned about that for some time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, this is what baffles me about the scientific field in all of this. You're talking about a hormone. Anybody that has studied hormones at a very basic level understands their impact. They influence neurotransmitter release. They influence um, uh, the, the stress, stress system. They influence other hormones. They influence the immune system. Hormones are not something to play around with. This is an extremely serious uh, uh, chemical. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I've spent 38 years in medicine working with overlooked hormone connections in both men and women's health. And the, the power of these reproductive hormones on the brain and the entire organ system of every body, every organ system in the body is profound. I've, I've written seven books on this, so I understand how powerful these hormones are. And, and taking the plan B abortifacient drug leads to potential serious adverse consequences, including major clinical depression. So, and, and disruption of the menstrual cycles. So there, and as well as many others. So I, I think it's important that people understand that you have a very deep knowledge of the hormone effects physiologically and psychologically on the brain. And that's what you're looking at in this research. That's right. So the plan B is actually levonorgestrel, which is a, a, a progestogen, if I recall correctly. So that, that is an aspect that I have not investigated. So what we're investigating here is mifepristone uh, primarily as the anti-progesterone drug that blocks progesterone and there, therefore terminates the, the pre pregnancy. Um, so they are two distinct things. Um, and I just want to make that clear. They, there is similarity ultimately in what they may do, uh, and, but that goes into complex pharmacology, uh, but they are, they are distinct. One is an, what is commonly called as the abortion drug, and that's what it's known as. And plan B is levonorgestrel, uh, which is, works uh, in, in a slightly different, different way, but affecting the same system. Exactly right. Well, go ahead with describing. Tell us what your research has found in terms of what are the consequences of abortion that you're seeing from a neurobehavioral standpoint in the animal model. And then what has happened in your journey to have your research published? Sure. So the journey started in about to 2013 when I first started the preliminary experiments and then moved into the full experiment looking 
at the consequences of mifepristone-induced pregnancy termination. Uh, so uh, the, the methodology that I utilized, I just want to emphasize, I, the techniques that I utilized to measure the measures of disordered behaviors, if you want to call them that, or psychopathologies, uh, like measuring depression, measuring anxiety, those are not techniques that I invented. Those are established in the scientific literature. And all I did was utilize the established methodology in order to investigate the question that I had, which is, what is the consequence of a pregnancy termination using mifepristone in an animal model, in a rat model? Uh, so that's, that's the, that was the underlying, underlying uh, question. Now, the reason, what the background to it would be because of the fact that uh, we understand that pregnancy is a significant procedure in the animal, it is a significant uh, process, sorry, not procedure, in the animal, across the board, humans included, in, in order to be able to prepare the, the female body for the life that's going to be within it. So there are significant immunological, psychological, physiological, neurological changes that take place in order to prepare the body for uh, for the pregnancy. Therefore, if you suddenly terminate a, a viable pregnancy, there have to be consequences. This is this is just the, the way the body reacts. The body reacts. The, the body uh, is cognizant, if that can be that term can be used in regards to the body, is cognizant of what is going on within it, and it realizes and adapts and changes in order for uh, for it to make the adjustments that are necessary in order to uh, deal with the, the situation, in this case, the pregnancy. Therefore, to terminate a pregnancy that is viable is going to is the equivalent of a train headed towards a, 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 a going at a high speed headed towards a, a, a cliff and literally just going off it. Because there's going to be, you're, you're going from a pregnant to a non-pregnant state when the pregnancy was viable and the body is going to be in shock. To, in, 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 I, I put that in quotes. It may not be the equivalent exactly of what in medicine is considered as a, a shock, but the body is going to go into some sort of shock because it was not expecting a termination of a viable pregnancy. There is a distinction between an abortion and a uh, miscarriage, and I can go address those details a bit later on in this conversation. But basically what we found out was that the termination of a pregnancy, a viable pregnancy in the rat induces anxiety and depression-like behaviors in the rat as measured by uh, previously uh, uh, established methodologies that, uh, uh, that uh, measure the, the, that to make these measures, depression, anxiety. We also saw physiological changes which require further investigation that lasted as long as uh, about 70 days after the abortion takes place. Now that may sound like a short period of time, but rat life is not equal to human life. 70 days or 70 to 80 days, I believe it was, uh, what is equivalent to about six human years. Uh, so the effects that we observed were significant in terms of depression and anxiety, and they lasted a significant amount of time compared to other stressors that people have reported in the literature. And also we saw physiological changes 
uh, that need further investigation that lasted as long as uh, 70, uh, 70 days or so, which is a significant amount of time. We also saw changes in fertility, uh, the differences in fertility between the, the group that maintained the pregnancy and gave birth and those that had an abortion. That, that is really stunning, but not surprising. Let me ask you this. I think it's very interesting because I actually, when I was in undergraduate um, as a biology major, one of my areas that I was working with one of my professors on was animal behavior. And lots of fascinating studies in the field of animal behavior. So what are some of the behavioral characteristics demonstrated by actions in the rats that we describe as comparable or similar to anxiety and depression in humans? How would that be manifest in the animals? Because I'm sure that our audience is, is asking the question, well, how do you know the rat is depressed or anxious? Well, obviously we don't know that but there are behavioral changes that we can observe. And since I've done that as part of my own work long ago, I'm very interested in your explaining to our audience just exactly how do we scientists observe that? Now that I'm in medicine, I have a different perspective on it. But at the time I was a biologist and you're a neuroscientist. So how, how do we how do we observe these changes in animals? Talk about it. Absolutely. So I think the audience will find out that realistically, even they probably have observed these behaviors if they have pets. So anybody that has a pet would know that if their animal suddenly shows an unkept coat, huddles in a corner, does not eat, they're probably sick, something is wrong. Those are considered as part of this uh, this this uh, behavior that is considered as a depression. Uh, think about it. When we are depressed, when we are sick, uh, one of the things that we do, we uh, let's take depression. We we can't be bothered talking to people. We may not be bothered. We can't be bothered going out of the house. Maybe. But there's these similarities. So one of the things that we do as scientists, we we look at what is involved in the diagnosis of a particular disease. And then we see if that kind of behavior is, or similar behavior is observed in, in an animal. So when it comes to depression, for example, the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual uh, of, for uh, the Diagnosis of Mental Disorders, for depression, it requires the concept of anhedonia, the inability that ought to experience pleasure. Well, you know, when we know that when we are depressed, we may not even feel like eating. And eating, maybe we even, we generally enjoy eating. So we look at animal models, and there are models that address this aspect. And for, for, for a, a food, we utilize a sucrose solution, a sugar solution. Now, when an animal is depressed, uh, if the, we give them a low concentration sugar solution, because when they are when they are not depressed, they prefer it over water. When they are depressed, they they are not interested in it. it they are not interested to work for it. It's 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 it, they are nozzle, the, the nozzles from which they drink require work, 
require an effort. And if they are uh, depressed, it's it's kind of there's this mentality of, well, this is not worth working for. It's a low solution. It's not worth it. But can you see the analogy to human behavior? I'm sure we've all done something similar in that regard. Something that you don't like when you're depressed or distressed becomes even less likable. And that's that's the aspect of, for example, uh, depression that we that we look at. Uh, then with regards to anxiety, one of the aspects that we look for is uh, the lack of movement. The, the, the animal, animals explore their new environment, and that's where we test them. Animals that are anxious will tend to stay towards the back of the cage and spend more time in what I would call a safe environment, further away from open space. And that uh, has been shown to uh, be similar to anxiety-like behaviors. Like I said, I think if the audience thinks about these behaviors, they may realize that either they've seen it in their animals, if they have pets, or they've observed it even maybe in their behaviors when they're not feeling too well. No, I think those are excellent observations. And it just helps people have a frame of reference of how we can look at the animal behaviors and make some conclusions that something's wrong with the animals since they can't talk to us. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Everyone who has a pet has noticed changes in the pet's behavior when something is wrong. I had two brothers who were cats and they were born together in the same litter. They were, they were very close out of that litter. They were the two that were buddies and they hung around together and I adopted both of them at the same time. When one of the brothers became very sick with coronavirus and ultimately died, his, his brother, whom I still have, is, was, was really, you could tell, he was kind of moping around the house. He kept going to the places where he and Charlie used to hang out together on top of the cat tree. And, and then he, Charlie wouldn't be there. And he'd race down again and go looking around like he was looking for his buddy. And, and he just kind of, and, he, and actually what was interesting was he kind of hung around me more than he had been. So we definitely, if, you, if we're observant, can see changes in the animals. And of course, that is what you're doing and you are, you have measurable characteristics that you're looking for objectively and you're quantifying that. And that's how the research progresses. Well, let's take a break here, Dr. Samut, and we'll be right back after the break. And we will talk more about what, what the conclusions were and then your published paper. And if your paper that you've been trying to publish um, is available and you'd like us to post it on our website and on our channels and our Substack. we'll be happy to do that. So at least people who are interested in this can read more about what you've found. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report from Truth for Health Foundation. Check us out at www.whistleblowerreports.org or you can go to any of our other channels that you may already have apps on your phone, Brighteon TV, Rumble, CloudHub, 
Spotify, Pandora, Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, and go to our website, www.truthforhealth.org, download our vaccine injury treatment guide and all of our other treatment guides, medical and legal fact sheets to help you prepare for all that's coming and to bring you the truth against the lies and deceptions. We'll be right back after the break. Hello, everyone. This is Lieutenant Colonel Brandy King, United States Air Force Reserve. I want to take this opportunity to thank and encourage Truth for Health Foundation and all its faithful donors. Your generosity ensured that I had legal representation when I found myself without an income due to reprisal and discrimination just hours after I voiced my need for an exemption from the investigational new drug and experimental use authorized only COVID-19 gene therapy injections. The Truth for Health Foundation not only funded my legal battle, the foundation has also helped keep me healthy and whole physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually through this long legal process and has enabled me to uphold my oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. I am forever grateful to the Truth for Health Foundation members and donors. May God bless each and every one of you in your efforts to stand for freedom, and may God bless America. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report, and today is the Medical and Freedom Report as well as a discussion of how faith-based institutions are not standing up to the tyranny from this administration and the global elites seeking to alter God's design of life on this planet. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Samut, neuroscientist and researcher in psychopathology at a Catholic university, and he is explaining some of the research he's been doing in the field related of neuroscience and psychopathology, but what impact does having an abortion, an early termination of a pregnancy in a sudden method using a a drug that triggers the abortion, what impact does that have physiologically on the brain and psychologically on the mother? Now, he's using a rat model, which is one of the um, animals that we use in brain research because so many of the pathways are closest to being analogous to human brain pathways and brain function. So there are some limitations to that, of course, but I think it's very interesting what he's found. So, Dr. Samut, let's go ahead with the results of your research and what what are what are some of the challenges and difficulties that you've found in the whole area of attempts to censor publication of your work? Absolutely. So with regards to the developing the animal model for abortion, which is what we've discussed just uh, prior to the break, uh, we discovered the anxiety like depression like behaviors. Uh, I just want to add one other aspect that we had some rats that were naturally miscarrying. Uh, obviously, you cannot plan a natural miscarriage. 
And these we were um, making some measures that were similar to what we were measuring in the abortion rats as well. And those rats did not show the same behaviors as the rats that had the abortion. Now, I've had people who've asked, they've said, well, you know, we, but humans feel it when there is a, a miscarriage. Yes, that's true. Uh, we had a miscarriage as well. However, as humans, uh, we, we have the capacity to reflect. So my wife and I often talk, we'll, 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 we'll mention, we'll bring up the fact of how old Savior would have been if he had been born. Um, if he had been born alive and he'd be in his early 20s at this point. Uh, we have the, that capacity to reflect. When we are looking at an animal model, which is one of the advantages of doing this research, we are purely looking at physiological and behavioral consequences. We do not have that ish confounding issue of the capacity to reflect. So as humans, we have the capacity to reflect. But here, with regards to the animals, we are observing a purely physiological process. So, for example, for in our case, the reason why the miscarriage took place was because the umbilical cord got a kink in it and Savior was not receiving any nutrition and, and died. But the body starts the process then of expelling that, uh, that, that baby um, because it knows that that baby is not viable. That baby has died. Uh, so there is a natural process. That is not what's happening in an abortion. An abortion, you have a viable baby that is whose life is being terminated. Um, so the fact that our rats showed differences, the rats that had a miscarriage showed differences from the abortion, uh, that to us is not surprising because it reflects the aspect of the body uh, being cognizant of what is going on within it. A, a termination of a viable pregnancy versus the expulsion or the, the end of a pregnancy that was not viable. Um, so for having that, that work was published in 2019. Uh, and then we proceeded with another question. Uh, the other question that we wanted to address was, can an abortion be reversed once it is initiated? This is an extremely controversial topic to me. Looking at it from a purely scientific perspective, and please, I want to emphasize here, it's not that faith is not important for me, but when you are conducting an experiment, you don't say, my faith says this, so I'm going to make this happen. That's unethical, inappropriate, that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't add anything to either the discourse or to what we know and what we learn. You do the experiment, you do it rigorously, you do it appropriately, and then you let the results talk and speak for themselves. So from the perspective of uh, the abortion pill reversal, which many medical associations refuse to call a reversal, I'll explain in a bit why in actual fact it is a reversal. Uh, and even unfortunately, legislatively, for example, in Colorado, it is medical, medical malpractice uh, under the recent Senate bill, I believe it's 23190 that was passed uh, for a doctor to, or a nurse, uh, to, to, to talk to patients with regards to abortion per reversal. Uh, the, there is a possibility for a woman that has had the abortion pill to reverse the process if she changes her mind within a very short period of time. We're talking about 72 hours or so. Uh, the, like I said, me medical organizations, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, say that this 
this does not exist, that there is no proof of this, yet they do not allow for a discourse to investigate this. Uh, so I wanted to investigate it in an animal model, because again, here, there is no social pressure either on the animal or uh, social pressure from my end. I don't tell the animal what to do. Uh, it's a matter of administering the appropriate drugs and looking at whether you can reverse the, uh, the uh, pregnancy termination. So let me just explain this simply. When we're talking about uh, mifepristone binding to the progesterone receptor, it blocks that it blocks it from progesterone being able to do anything on it. But for anybody that has a, a studied chemistry, I'm sure this would make sense. But simply put, um, you can actually flood the system to compete with the mifepristone to get it off the receptors. And what you can do is you uh, uh, progesterone is called an agonist. It binds to the receptor and activates it. Progest uh, mifepristone blocks the progesterone effect. So what you're seeking to do in an abortion pill reversal process is reverse the system. And I am intentionally using the word reverse here. Reverse the system to its original state of pregnancy, which was the changes that were induced uh, in, in the body in, in the, because of the pregnancy was a totally natural process resulting from the pregnancy. Therefore, when, when we have mifepristone blocking the, the progesterone from acting on that receptor, but then we flood the system to displace the mifepristone and allow the progesterone to act there, we are reversing the system to the original state, physiological state of pregnancy. And this is the simple chemistry. If chemistry was taught in fifth grade, this is fifth grade chemistry. The, the, the simple chemistry of what is being proposed with regards to the procedure. After all, there's also progesterone has been utilized in women who have had problems with maintaining pregnancy. So it's not strange that progesterone could be administered in that regard. So I wanted to test it out. So I had groups of rats that did not receive progesterone and a group of rats that did, and then some, uh, some other con controls. And what we did, what we, our results showed is that in 80% of the rats administered progesterone after mifepristone, the abortion was reversed and those rats had viable babies at the end of their pregnancy. So this is the fundamental finding of our study. Now, obviously, wow. this, this is... This is uh, this is a practice that has been utilized in humans. Admittedly, there has not been any investigation at the. There, well, there was. There was a Yamabi paper paper that took place. Um, some research that took place some years ago, but they administered uh, mifepristone early, progesterone at the same time. So our study specifically administered mifepristone. We required uh, to see. Uh, a part of our uh, criteria involved that we needed to see the signs of an initiation of an abortion. Uh, and we saw bleeding in the rats that had were administered mifepristone. But we had also then administered progesterone uh, some, sometime after the mifepristone. And those rats that received the progesterone 
that in 81%, approximately 81% of those rats, we saw living fetuses with heart rates that were no different because we did ultrasounds. No, and this, all of this is explained in our study, uh, no different from the rats that gave normal uh, birth, had babies that, that, sorry, rats that had, that had viable uh, pregnancies at the end but did not receive mifepristone. Um, so, yeah, administration of progesterone after mifepristone reversed the effects of mifepristone with viable babies being present at the end of gestation in those rats, but not present in the rats that did not receive progesterone. So the rats that only had mifepristone and they were administered vehicle, uh, meaning the oil with no drug in it, instead of progesterone, those rats that received only mifepristone, there was a 100% abortion rate in that group. Wow, that is extraordinarily significant. And what has happened when you, I mean, I think that's, that's just incredibly valuable information. And what happened when you tried to publish the study? When we submitted our paper to uh, Frontiers in Endocrinology, uh, we submitted it to an endocrinology journal because this is endocrinology. We're talking about hormones and their effect on the body. Uh, the, 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 it went through the peer review process. Uh, there were some changes that needed to be made. There were some uh, comments that needed to be addressed and those are addressed. That's what a valid, appropriate peer review process should do. It should improve quality of the paper uh, and uh, those were made and for all indications so we submitted our paper in October of last year for all indications by about uh, January 12th of 2023 the paper appeared to have been accepted even by the handling editor uh, however uh, some time later I received an email notifying me of a rejection of the manuscript and the reason that was given was because it did not, they said, fit the quality acceptable by the journal. Now, any journal, before you send out a paper for review, and I am, and I act as a handling editor also, you're supposed to check for the quality of the article and whether it fits the criteria of the journal when the article is first submitted, not at the end after the peer review process has taken place. So given the vague statement that was made, I inquired with the editorial board that I wanted clarity. I wanted them to clearly and exactly outline what was meant by what aspects of the article uh, did not fit the quality acceptable by the journal. Sometime after that, I received an email from the editorial board and they outlined three major aspects. And if it's okay with you, I can very quickly address them. Um, is that okay? Would that be okay? Absolutely, um, I think that's important. So one, uh, the first point that they raised was the fact that I did not see a hundred percent reversal. Please tell me which scientific research ever has a hundred percent outcome, especially when we are talking about a complex physiological process. On what basis and since when has this become an acceptable standard? In the scientific in scientific research so there were that was the first aspect the second aspect they said that in order to address uh, to ensure that 
uh, that, that, that you know, the reversal has taken place, uh, we needed to have made measurements on the health uh, of, the, of the offspring after they were born. Now, my study is very clearly titled that it is a preliminary investigation. We wanted to see whether you don't proceed with a full experiment with extensive long-term studies if you don't know if the procedure is going to work. I mean, there was substantial information, ultrasound, heart rates, et cetera, that I, we address in the paper. But uh, we had mentioned in our discussion that this, the, the aspect of long-term follow-up was going to take place uh, in, in upcoming studies. And in fact, we have started those studies. Uh, so, so realistically, that was not really an argument there because we have addressed, had addressed that this was a limitation. We had not measured the health of the babies after they were born. We collected the uteri at the end of gestation. Um, but it was a study that was going to be uh, followed, that, that follow this current study. The third uh, point that was raised, and I am going to quote here, so it leaves no doubt as to exactly what was said, and certainly no misinterpretation from my end. They said that, lastly, the manuscript might be interpreted as supporting the notion of a pharmacological reversal of induced pregnancy termination in humans, a concept which, in line with recent statements by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the U.S., and the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the UK cannot be supported. Emphasis is all mine. That's end quote. So basically what they are saying is scientific evidence does not matter if this is what the organization says. This is what it is. And I don't function by those principles. I function by what I observe as a scientist. My duty and obligation is towards the truth. My duty and obligation is towards rigor and doing it pro properly. My duty and obligation is towards asking a question and seeking to answer it appropriately. Uh, so this, this aspect was extremely disturbing uh, for, for me because it clearly indicated to me a clear political agenda. This is not science. This is not medicine. It is sad for me to see science in this, in this state. Uh, in regards to then after that, uh, because there's no arguing with the editors, uh, after I, I responded to the editors and uh, made my points clear in that regard, um, we submitted to other, another journal, we submitted to scientific reports, where the journal called scientific reports, where it underwent uh, peer review also, and ultimately uh, was published. And it was published uh, approximately uh, three weeks, uh, three week, three weeks ago. Uh, so uh, that has been the, the the state of the situation with regards to uh, what took place in this particular paper. It really disturbs me, as I said, uh, from a number of aspects. From an aspect of an academic and as a researcher, as a scientist. It disturbs me because I see active processes taking place here that are seeking to shut down the appropriate investigation, appropriate discourse that is supposed to take in science. Please note that at no point in this conversation, uh, even though I do believe that abortion is morally wrong, but however, at no point in this conversation thus far have I ever said that the results col collaborate, corroborated, corroborated, or uh, uh, addressing my results from the perspective of faith. 
I'm addressing my results from a purely uh, uh, objective perspective, which is what the role of every scientist, you do not bend to ideology. Your goal is to seek the truth in the investigation through the question that you are asking. And that is not what is taking place. We saw it through COVID. Uh, we saw it. We saw it with regards. To, we see it with regards to abortion. We see it. Uh, we see it in every the, the ethics, the the the, the gen, degeneration of the scientific community and the medical community is extremely disturbing. Today, I came across a paper which which disturbs me that this is even uh, allowed to be published. Basically, uh, addressing how potassium chloride could be is extremely effective in uh, killing a baby in the womb between the 22 to 36 weeks of pregnancy this is the kind of literature that we are publishing this is the kind of science we call this science i thought science was supposed to be for the benefit of humanity where is the benefit of humanity when we see such uh, su such papers being published yet then papers like mine that are genuinely seeking to ask a question as to where is this possible i know what i believe but to ignore what i believe i'm asking this question from a scientific perspective is this possible uh, these these the, we see opposition uh, to such papers being published uh, and this this to me is extremely uh, distressing because this is not what science truly is you're so right and it actually it is more than personally distressing to people like you and me and other physicians and scientists who have worked hard to bring truthful analysis of actual data to the public to help people make informed decisions it is very chilling it actually is a form of totalitarianism and it is a form of evil suppression of truth that can save lives. And we saw that all through COVID, the COVID death protocols in hospitals. You mentioned that you are a professor in a, in a small Catholic university. I had direct experiences with Catholic hospitals, hospitals under the banner of the Catholic church carrying out known euthanizing doses of sedatives and hypnotics, morphine, fentanyl, midazolam, and others. When they knew the doses in combination with respiratory compromised patients would result in death. I had personal experience with patients trapped in Catholic hospitals as well as Protestant affiliated hospitals where the patients were denied proper fluid, proper food, proper medication treatment, antibiotics, diabetes medicines, and others, and forced into taking, lied to about the safety of remdesivir, did not have proper informed consent, pushed to take remdesivir, put on ventilators, and died. And the hospitals knew the death rates were sky high, and they did it anyway. We are seeing churches not stand up against the risk and the deaths and the disability and the damage from the COVID shots. They are silent in the face of this evil assault on life. And this suppression of medical research, the suppression of medical treatment, the suppression of access to 
adequate food and nutrition and medication and family support in hospitals. It's all part of an agenda that is an assault on life. It is an anti-Christian philosophy and ideology, and it's being pushed by the government and the churches and church-affiliated institutions are complicit and compliant. And that is the definition of evil. They are contributing to the destruction of life and truth that is biblically our guide. What we have seen in the past few years, what you describe with regards to COVID, and what we see even with regards to abortion is equivalent, if not worse than what the Nazis did. And yet the silence is con condemns, the, the, it should be condemned, the silence of leaders within churches, uh, the, the, it's not that they don't have evidence. There is very little excuse for anybody these days that they don't have evidence. Uh, it, it, it would, they will have, the, people will have to answer in front of God. What we are seeing is not the care for, of the patient, not the care of our brother, or we, what we are seeing is this, the intentional uh, uh, collaboration in the destruction of humanity. And people are being silent when the evidence exists to show what criminal activity is actually taking place, because this is criminal. You are so right, Dr. Samud, and thank you for your courage. And I will issue a call to action for all scientists and physicians out there and all church leaders. Are you going to answer to God or the government? Because you will be held accountable on Judgment Day one, if, one way or the other. And it is your soul and your conscience that should be guiding your decision, not a political agenda. This is Dr. Lee for America with Truth For Health, the rest of the story and the whistleblower report from Truth For Health Foundation, where we bring you the truth and hope and solutions against the lies and deceptions that are assaulting us. Join our crusade. We are silent no more, and we need your support. Donate if you can to help support our efforts in this fight to help save lives and help bring the truth to people. Sign up for our medical alerts and download our treatment guides, medical and legal resources. We will see you with another whistleblower report at www.whistleblowerreports.org. Thank you for joining us today.